Greetings, fellow citizens of Disneyland. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to make a couple of quick announcements. I have taken it upon myself that as long as the gates of Disneyland are closed, Disneyland for Designers is going to become a weekly podcast. Because as I'm doing all of my other work with being a full-time podcaster, I find that I personally need to go inside of Disneyland more than ever. My ritual as a fan is I go every single week, and I want to still go every single week, and I want to take you there with me. So whether I have Jared on the show, someone like Philander Butler, who will be joining us next week to do our lap around Disney's California Adventure, or if I just hit record by myself to talk about my love, the philosophies, the design of Disneyland, Disneyland for Designers is moving over to a weekly schedule, a new episode for everyone every Wednesday. And also, in my love of Disneyland, I'm taking a little bit of a gamble here. The way that I make a living is through the circle of trust. People pay for a monthly subscription or annual subscription to get the over 200 episodes that I release all year long. This is my full-time job being a podcaster. It's been my full-time job for the last six years. Over at AID.network, people can become a Circle of Trust member. And the way I reward my members is with bonus content. They get an extra hour, 45 minutes of every episode. And since the world went into this moment of social distancing, as of today, I have put up 34 episodes, 34 days in a row, making sure that no one goes alone during social distancing. But that's one part of my career. And Disneyland for Designers is a little bit out of that scope. I mean, I know my uh, Circle of Trust members, many of them are hardcore Disney fans, and they see this show as a perk, as part of what I offer them. But I want to offer this for everybody. So if you would like to support Disneyland for Designers, being a weekly show, and the entire thing being free for everyone, which is essentially me giving away my product, my services for free. And I'm only driving this home just to make you understand that in order for me to do my job, there's a lot of freeness that has to go along with it. And this is my full-time job living here in Los Angeles. And I do okay, but I could always do better and I could always use your support. So if you want to support Disneyland for Designers moving over to a weekly schedule, on the honor system, you can go to anchor.fm, Disneyland for number four designers. You can also go over to my Instagram at Mark Bricky. I'll have it linked in my bio. Uh, but I'm going to try this thing out while the gates are closed and see if we can get enough people that can throw a little bit in the old guitar case on the side of the street. See, I, I hate my job. I, like, I love being a podcaster. I hate that it means doing stuff like this. Like, I just wish I could charge everybody. And if you wanted to hear it, you had to pay for it. But unfortunately, podcasting steps in the shadows of radio. And even though listening to the radio in your dad's car when you were a kid was free for your dad, it wasn't free for the advertisers or the radio stations. So there's no reason why podcasting should be free. But those are the rules because it sounds like radio. It gets treated like radio. But just to take down the fourth wall, I am one man making over a couple hundred episodes of content each and every year, trying to entertain people, trying to make people laugh, trying to make people feel like they have a friend on the high times, the low times, and during right now, the socially distant times. So head over to anchor.fm, Disneyland for designers, if you want to support just this episode or just this show, and if you want to support all my endeavors, you can head over to AID.network. Ah, 
I do not enjoy doing that, but it is what I have to do to keep my job going. And I would love to continue to put these episodes out each and every week and bring on so many of the different extreme Disney fans that I know that all in one way or the other are professionals that work in and around the park. So hopefully we can build this community and we can service people that have this unique love for this thing called Disneyland. One way or the other, whether I get properly funded or not, I can promise you as long as the gates are closed that I will take you to Disneyland each and every week. Because right now, the world could use a little Disneyland. What do you say we get started with Disneyland for Designers, Chapter 15, with my good friend Jared Maruyama. It's a small world. You're listening to the AID Network. This is the story of a beautiful place known as the happiest place on earth. And all of its history, its secrets, and its tricks that you may find if your mind believes in design and you allow your heart to believe in magic. Step inside and become a citizen of Disneyland. Well, 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 there he is, my Disneyland life partner. Uh, I'm sorry, who are you again? Remind me again. I, I'm your wee lucky redheaded friend who's going to take <laughs> you around the old Walt's Magic Kingdom. I don't recognize you in this uh, situation, this setup. This is unnatural. This is very unnatural, but Jared, I think if we try real hard, we can see that we're standing underneath the sorcerer's hat. That's right. <laughs> Here at the, the mouth, the open birth of downtown Disneyland. I'm going to ask you a question right now. Okay. This okay. might be the hardest question you've had to an- answer all day. Hmm. Do you want to walk through downtown Disney to the Espananda and then <laughs> make our way to our subject matter today? Or do we just want to hop on the monorail? Uh, you know, I don't think we've hopped on the monorail before. Let's do that. Let's hop on the monorail. So we're going to get our temperature red. Oh, look at me. I am hot, but not too hot to go into Disneyland. <laughs> I I might be too hot, but let's let's take a chance. There I'm Asian, so it's an extra check for me. It is. But uh yeah, let's let's do this. Oh, he he checked in your bag. No bat soup. You're able to get in. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I ate it before I came. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. We got to wait for Tabitha to get through. All right. <laughs> Tabitha's done with her temper tantrum. You know, as we come over here and we hop on the monorail, Jared, I have to urge everybody, we're standing on the platform as we're going through these doors. We want to sit immediately on the bench because we want that seat that's going to look into Disneyland, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Because on the way into the park, if we sit on the backside, I mean, it's cool to look out on Harbor Boulevard. Right. But I want that. I want that behind the scenes. I want to, like we're riding right now, I want to look at the train station. I want to look into Disneyland. And now that we're going along the backside and we get to see uh, backstage, all these areas we never get to. Oh, look, there's a Starbucks for employees only. I'll get there. I'll get (laughs) there one day, Jared. Don't worry. (laughs) Who knew Space Mountain was this close to the edge of the parking lot? And now we're coming around the backside. And for the next 
what feels like two hours. We're just going to do loops and loops around Fantasyland, <laughs> the Matterhorn, my favorite ride, Nemo Subs. And look, it's Utopia, pronounced correctly. <laughs> oh, it's so great. It does feel like endless circles there. I mean, I love it. I'm happy to do it because that's my favorite part, just circling and trying to get the different angles. And you turn into like a five-year-old where you're like, you see these things from the monorail and it feels like it's a different perspective completely. Um, So, yeah, I love that part of it. It it is. This part right here is a very magical part of Disneyland. And, you know, a lot of the complaints about the newer things that they built, that it doesn't have this same stacking of storytelling the kinetic Mm. energy as they say well as we're getting out of the monorail today thank you cast member um before we go down the stairs do you mind if we go over by the elevator and take a quick photo of us together in front of the matterhorn if i don't have to take the photo i'm all for it (laughs) that that perfect (laughs) photo of me only took you about 40 tries (laughs) all right we're going down the stairs. Yes, yes. We're whipping around the lagoon. It's hard to think, Jared, that any man in his right mind would think that a mermaid out there would be real and would jump over the fence to go swim out to her. Mm, crazy people. Different time. Different time. But, hey, it was something that happened. So now we're working our way around the edge of the Matterhorn. If we look over to our right, we can see kids on their phone, not paying attention to driving their Utopia cars. We can see the new mm-hmm. Matterhorn fast pass system with the carved wood animals above the fast pass we can go past our Very nice favorite fan uh, is it fantasia gardens fin what is it the yeah i think it is, is yeah, fantasia the, gardens the, yeah the old the old boat dock for boatopia and now as we come ar- as we come around the edge as we come around the sorry my headphones were talking to me as we come ah. around the edge i mean what headphones i'm in disneyland <laughs> yeah we are now at the wide, wide walkway that is going to take us up to today's subject matter, which is it's a small world. Mm. Jared? Happiest place in the happiest place. Is this your favorite attraction? Uh, Yeah, it's sort of like the official, like if I have to be official Disney Jared here, yes, small world is my official favorite attraction, if that makes any sense. Because... It's one of those things It kind of feels like it's a safe answer. You know, it's almost like a cop out. It's very classic Disney and things like that. But in, it really is. Uh, when I look at it and add everything up, it's my attraction. So it's your favorite attraction. And that is because of the characters, the style guide, the, the song, the boat. Like what, what really draws you into it? I think it's everything. It is absolutely everything that you said there. And it's, 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 Represents probably one of my first memories mm. of going to the park. Mm. Um, so you've got the nostalgia factor therein, very like specifically, and it hasn't changed since then as much as, as some of the other attractions might have. Um, my uh, sort of, I think what I like about it then is what I like about it now. Yeah, that hasn't adjusted. I, yeah. I haven't. I don't have to sort of make a concession that oh, this is a kids thing that I like now. I still have great affection for it. Um, but I do like Mary Blair, one of my favorite artists and inspiration, like it is for so many people. There's that mid-century modern feel to it. Um, and I was just thinking about this as we were talking about recording for the show. It kind of feels like Christmas, even when it's not Christmas. It and does I think have that that's magic. what I really like about it. Yeah. So it's like Christmas year round. And then when it goes into the Christmas season... It's like overdrive. Yeah. Uh, forgive me for riding in the boat backwards while I talk to you right now. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but, okay, so 
you said something there about that. It feels like Christmas, even when it's not Christmas. Mm -hmm. And unlike you and many of the guests that got to ride this when they were a child, my first ride was as an adult. And I, I immediately figured out that there was something insanely special about this attraction and the way that it's mm -hmm. constructed and it, it, it's one of those things that it feels very much like the time period that it was built in which mm -hmm. is the the mid 60s which was sort of a highlight of modernism and optimism and design right. and even though it's had a couple of updates that we'll talk about today it still to its core feels like going into a different time um mm -hmm. dare i say a, a simpler time a safer time like just a time with like way less expectations so you can mm -hmm. sort of hit a bullseye and everybody's like, whoa, this is amazing. Cause something like this built today, people will be like, whatever, but you mm -hmm. take its, its ancestry and you take what it means to people and the emotions behind it. And it really is a special thing that it still exists and sales all day long, every day, except for today. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you look at the, the you know, obviously things are, were created for the World's Fair of all those attractions that they created for that and brought over here. You'd kind of think this would be the one with like the expiration date on it, right? right. Like, oh, this can run for 10 years and then we'll probably, it's so much real estate. It's such a big building. We could probably take it down and do something else. But this is the one that would probably, I think more people would die if they took this thing out. Absolutely. I mean, the, um, uh, the Carousel of Progress is done at Disneyland. Right, right. Abraham Lincoln's still there, but, I mean, no one would ever say that that's their favorite must-do every time. And I will say this, the Abe Lincoln holiday overlay when they put the Santa hat on him is great. <laughs> it's my favorite. <laughs> it's one of my favorite moments, too. It's great. But when we look at It's a Small World and we go back to the origins of it, when mm -hmm. it was originally going to be called Children of the World, Thank, Wonderful. Thank God the song was catchy and Walt's like, I think I'm going to pivot and go with the song because people will be like, you know, the children of the world song that goes, it's a small world like a thousand times. <laughs> but, you know, it was built for the 64 World's Fair, as you said, and there was such an optimism with all of the archi architecture of the 64 World's Fair. It was kind of a future in many ways that we were promised, but never really got like. You can mm -hmm. see some buildings like that today still in Detroit. You can see some in, in various parts of Southern California. But by and large, that optimism and that, that mid-century modern architecture, sort of the atomic age, it just never really matured. And it, it's too bad because it's really kind of the smartest. It's the smartest look that I ever saw promised to the future. And maybe that's why it didn't succeed. Mm hmm that, yeah, that's true. But with Small World, I think uh, even at the time, this must have felt like nostalgia, though, right? Like contemporary nostalgia. Yeah. Like we're we're we're, we're stylizing it to to kind of a, a contemporary look, somewhat. Um, but it still is is playing on some sort of old fashioned ideas of children, of toys, of of. Uh, it even feels like holidays. Uh, you know, um, the way that they treat sort of the the cultures and things like that. So, like it's it sits in an interesting spot. And I think that's why it is so timeless in that way. Whereas other things, uh, the futurism of that time feels dated like the next day. Right. When we look at where small world actually sits now, and mm -hmm. you know, once it got moved out to, to Disneyland, um, a few years after being in New York city, which is, isn't it just bizarre to think that 
it existed in New York for a couple of years and sold millions of tickets at 50 cents and 90 cents for kids and for adults. Like it's insane to think that it was not always here. Like, you know, think about it. Mm -hmm. There was a time when somebody like, ah, we're not going to go to Disneyland this summer. We'll wait next summer when they put that small world in. (laughs) <laughs> waiting for that small world boarding pass you uh-huh. know, that would be, yeah do you want to crazy. talk about simpler times remember the most difficult thing in our life was that we didn't get boarding passes for rise of the resistance <laughs> would you not life is very hard would you not trade that for everything right now <laughs> yeah exactly but i mean it's it's interesting to think that this wasn't always a part of disneyland mm-hmm. and what must it have felt like when it did arrive at disneyland Oh, I know. So watching that footage of like opening day when this thing came and, and it was, it's like a pretty big deal. They made a huge deal of this oh, thing yeah. coming. They, they, they pushed out past the railroad, right? The, um, the rail tracks to, to add this specifically to add this show building, made it bigger than it was at the world's fair. Um, they had a parade, um, just crazy. And they did this whole ceremony and everything. It's great. All the footage is on there. If there's one time I wish I was at Disneyland, I think it would be for, for that opening. That seems so Disney and like Walt is there and they've got these kids there and they're releasing doves. I mean, I think that to me is sort of epitomizes a lot about what I love about the park. Yeah. And I think that one of the things we'll get into today is how this attraction comes from maybe the, the best of Disneyland. You know, when we look at the people that worked on this attraction and what was built right at small world and what would come in the years after it, I mean, granted we would lose Walt in that window, but I mean, everything was firing on all cylinders. And you talk about that opening, the pageantry of that opening of the doves and everybody dressed in outfits. And like you said, they brought children from all around the world. And even if it's a lie, a plus for effort that they did the water from the seven seas. Right. <laughs> Even if it's a lie, A for yes. effort on yeah. the storytelling that, you know, they've got different children from around the world that had a, 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 vase of, a vase of water from their body of water and they all poured it in the It's a Small World River so that it would actually have water from all around the world. Like, just what an amazing idea to even come up with that. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it is, it is, um, you would look, now i think right like oh that water did not come from anywhere they probably filled those up beforehand but you know uh the nature of what this attraction represented uh even if these kids didn't come still like the feeling of it, the fact that they would put on this big show for this attraction is pretty amazing yeah and i mean you know that was a, a moment in disney too where they were i think they had enough miles in the park they had a, they'd made enough people happy that they kind of knew what they were doing and how to put things together and i think sort of the proof of that is that you know it's hard to think of disney walt disney and disneyland without an unlimited checkbook um with just you know just endless resources financial resources just build whatever they want uh, unfortunately it's going to be real easy to imagine that again real soon after yeah. they can finally open up the parks but Everything used to have a sponsor. And at the World's Fair, Walt was basically freelancing. And, mm-hmm. you know, he built stuff for Ford. He built stuff for the state of Illinois. And it was basically like he would be your artist. He and his crew would build something for the World's Fair so your brand could make a big splash. And the deal mm-hmm. was you only needed it for two years. So then he would pack it up, 
and bring it back to Disneyland. So such an amazing way to think about making money and growing your park and, and, you know, getting back to even or getting back to profiting even faster. So it's a small world was done in a tight window. Pepsi had kind of dragged their heels. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were some other things that got canceled with Kodak and things weren't working out. So Pepsi came in late and they did what a good client would do. We kind of have to just approve it. We can't, we can't overly get involved because it was 11 months to design it, manufacture it, build it, and deliver it to New York City. So it was kind of that good moment as an artist where the client knows that they're rushing you so they don't overly get involved. And mm-hmm. all of the artists know that they've got a very small window to build a little boat ride for Walt. And I think... If you look at it, that not overthinking it, that mm-hmm. would go into Pirates, that would really go into the Haunted Mansion when everybody was afraid to make the first attraction without Walt. I think that It's a Small World really kind of symbolizes when artists get into that flow state and you're just making it fast because you got to make it fast. Because it's a little rough and a little loose around the edges, but I think that's what makes it perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely uh, the charm of the thing. And, and they knew sort of to build that into it, sort of a naive approach to everything that this should look uh, kind of like kids could build something yes. like this. Yes. Uh, and, and so that's sweet. That works perfect to their advantage and everything. Uh, you know, there's so much history about this ride and, and, and we don't know really how much is fact and how much is rumor and stuff. But to think that they were told we have so little time for this thing, start building the building. And we'll fill it. And like, we'll put something inside that only yeah. has to run boats and water. No big deal. We'll figure it out. It wasn't like it was a train set that they could, yeah. you know, skew it a little bit, go 30 degrees this way. I mean, it was a boat that has to run in a, in a plastic moat. But you bring up a very important design matter or creative thinking matter. You have to design within your restrictions. So I always say this. One of the things that will ruin like an independent film really fast is if they try to do something that's too ambitious for their budget. And it's a small world. It's perfect in we're going to use some artists that have a little bit of a looser style. The theme is that these this was made by kids for kids as if you're going to like a school play so by taking it and i'm not i don't want to say dumbing it down but by Mm -hmm. simplifying your theme you get to make that that window of 11 months because even though he did work on it think if these were all like complicated individual children illustrated by Mark Davis, right? Like mm-hmm. think about it. If it was the technical storytelling that we see in it, pirates, they would have got one room done. Yep. No, I think. And then to put your sort of, you know, I, I don't know if it was at the time, but we look at it now. We're like, this is the greatest hits of people that oh. worked on this attraction, right? Everyone's doing their thing so well uh, in this sort of, maybe it's because the the theme is sort of easy to grasp and everyone can jump on sort of, Easily, or they're not fighting about. Well, I think it should be this other thing, um, but to have Mary Blair and, and Bob Gurr and, and all these people, you know, working on it, it's just it shows. I think, and I think uh, the main thing about this attraction, I think, is the sincerity, and it feels like everyone's being extremely sincere on this thing because there's no room for anything else, really. Well, let's look at the actual all-star cast of of who built this. When I'm going to say is like right 
in the middle. I mean, this is Empire Strikes Back in the golden yes. age <laughs> of Disneyland and WED. So, okay, first off, we have Mary Blair, and her contribution to the attraction was she basically created the style guide and was in charge of the color swatches, the patterning. At the time, she wasn't a, she wasn't a full-fledged Disney employee. She'd been doing lots of books, lots of illustrations. She comes on board. They make this, and, you know... She was basically the vision. And looking at that 11-month window, you got to get somebody that can see design in a simplified way and can take these other more talented people in complexity that we're going to mention, but guide them in a, this is a, this is how it looks. Don't go totally crazy. Stay inside the style guide. So just an amazing leader right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I, I, you know, I think about this, um, kind of reading about uh, her contribution to this i i don't know this seems both like a dream project to me and like the biggest nightmare you could ever face right so they come to you they want you to do this you know she's had a history with the disney company before sort of an up and down history with the company but still um i don't know like if i were if they came to me and they said here's what we need we need this right away that would terrify me beyond beyond belief and and for her to just sort of do what she does and think like i don't know how this translates to a dimensional attraction but here's all the mary blair you want like i don't know how you get sort of the balls to do that right and feel good about it like walt must have really liked her which seems obvious yeah but um to have that confidence to do these broad strokes uh, e- even with this kind of um child-friendly approach is still, to me, amazing. I think it's like a once-in-history kind of thing from that perspective. I mean, I think it shows Walt's creative intelligence, uh, Mm -hmm. or I should say creative genius, in that he knew having basically the architect of the attraction be somebody that can take big ideas and simplify them down, that that would make it go faster. So you mm-hmm. got Mary Blair as sort of, you know, the the quarterback or the coach, you know, that gives the the style guide out. And then Mark Davis was assigned to, to do sort of the placement of the characters in the scenes. Mm-hmm. So you take a guy that's really got an eye for unbelievable storytelling. You place him in a more simplified, um, less detailed environment. Right. But man, oh man. Those cityscapes, like the way, like the Spain one or the the Germany one, for example, the 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 stacking of those, how much storytelling is in one little cube is unbelievable. Oh yeah, and, and on top of that, not, not with just the storytelling, which is something I think is in is in absolutely every Disney attraction, is that it's the one time where they're doing conceptual art. And the goal is to maintain that concept, not to make it a realistic version yes, to stay there. of the building, but to like, how do we bring this thing to life intact? Uh, you know, it, it, she worked on a lot of the films at a, at a key time for the studio and, and the, um, you know, her very stylized approach was sort of at odds with a lot of the more traditional Disney animation. Right. But then you see it here in real life, and I think it works perfectly. I think this is a perfect showcase of what she does uh, for for Disney. Like she did Cinderella, she did Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland. You can see her influence in there, and they're they're trying to make it work very hard, but it's still at odds with this very clean, tight animation. So to see it here, I think it's just it just works so well. And you know the way that the different nations come together like the way all these little jigsaw puzzle pieces fit together and how your sight lines are constantly bending and turning like i think of 
the the Middle East pavilion where you have all of the ladies along that fountain or, you know, the, the body of water, which is a silky blue sheet that's blowing mm-hmm. in the wind to make the right. water go, which is amazing. By the way, that fabric, that like weird kind of flammable looking fabric only exists in that river and the Dallas Cowboys bottoms that they wear when they play football. Like every time I see the Cowboys play, I'm like, they're wearing the small world blanket on their butt. They, they got a smell out there on the field. But that's the weirdest, weirdest thing we've had on the show so far, I think. I will top myself. <laughs> Don't you worry. Okay. Good, good. Bookmark that. I will go beyond that at some point. Great. But that that pavilion in particular, where you have like the little Greek area, you have th- that one, you have the the um, the kids on the magic flying carpets above, and then it sort of bends its way over further in that direction uh, mm-hmm. to where we go into Asia. And it's just like how all of that perfectly comes together it's it's unbelievable that jigsaw puzzle and on top of that we're looking up at everything it it, Mm -hmm. it, think about how much different it would be if everything was at stage level like Mm -hmm. there are few things at stage level but we're constantly looking vertically up at all the storytelling to save space uh and to also make less canvas for them to cover but the layout and composition of this is masterful Yes, no, that is exactly right. And I think that it goes back to exactly what we were saying. Like this, this ride forever gives you the perspective of a child. Uh, no matter how big or how old you get, you still are lower than everything. You're still looking up at everything. You still have to kind of look around things yes. to see. And like you, you didn't see it the first time. It's like how you felt when you walked into like a, a toy store when you were a kid. It just seemed overwhelming. And I think that doesn't go away. Whereas with a dark ride, things are more life-size. And it's supposed to be that we're, we are a character in this film. So everything stays the same. But now we feel big in this Peter Pan boat, right? Like you, <laughs> getting into that boat now, you, you feel like an adult. You feel right. like a, you're too big for this cart. But that doesn't happen with small worlds. It's the same. So I think that's a big part of why it sort of endures. When we look over at Alice Davis, did all of the costuming, it's unbelievable how much costuming had to be done for this because mm. each vignette that we come up to can have, you know, one to a dozen characters. Very rarely do things repeat and duplicate, you know, mm-hmm. even um, when you're looking at the um, the tribal guys that are banging on the drums, right, individual right. mask, you know what I mean? Like, just like there's a lot of things that designers do to to cut corners and they really went hard on this one. Then wrapping it up, uh, Blaine Gibson designed and sculpted all of the dolls and sort of an interesting decision that they made, which I'm sure once again, this is timing and production, but every single doll, regardless of what country it's from, regardless of what race it is, it's always the same doll. So Mm -hmm. it really does bring in that through line of we are all the same. It doesn't matter your color. It doesn't matter where you're from on planet earth. We are all the earth's children. And I love, even if it was a budget thing, I love that that's the way that it turned out. Yeah, no, I think it kind of almost has to be that way, right? Like, because you know that there would be like an American doll and then it would quickly turn into caricature. Yeah. You just couldn't, you couldn't do that. I mean, and, and thankfully, given the time period and everything, they, they didn't do that. Like, like you said, whether it was budgetary or whatever, it makes for the most um, like uh, thematically correct, not politically correct, but thematically correct choice. And I, I just, I love 
that when you stop and think about it, you're like, oh, they're all the same. They're just painted yep. differently. And right. that, once again, you know, do a lot of people pay attention to that? Do they think about that? No. But I think as artists and creatives, it's our job to plant deeper storylines, deeper themes and everything that we do. I mean, we've been wanting to talk about Small World for a long time, but we're talking mm-hmm. about it today because... Planet Earth has never felt smaller than it feels mm-hmm. today, Jared. Like that's right. Everybody on planet Earth going through the exact same thing at the exact same time. Like it's just insanity how this has brought us all together. So this attraction feels more relevant than ever. Oh, completely agree. It's suddenly like we're all in one big school and giving each other, you know, chicken box. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think uh I think that's, again, another reason why this thing endures is it's, it's this kind of nice reminder of all things good and sort of the uh, the emotion of Disneyland in, in general, right? It's sort of encapsulated in this in this ride. One of the other uh, artists that were a part of the, the hero team to put this together, and, and his his role's very interesting. Rolly mm-hmm. Crump did the toys and, like, all the, like, supplemental figures and secondary things, right? So non-children. Yeah. Right. So yeah. he's kind of doing the the other things that are animating so that the the world just feels a little bit bigger and a little bit more complete. However, when the attraction would get packed up and then brought uh out to Anaheim and get put back together, Rolly was tasked with doing the outer facade that a lot of people assume Mary Blair did, but actually Rolly mm-hmm. did that. And then designing that clock yep and they had an interesting decision to make because the train right like if you ran the train in front of this that would be horrible if you ran the train like underneath it that's a missed opportunity so that idea to have it be the levels of storytelling that i love the facade the train the little bridge that goes over the train and then Mm -hmm. you have the clock out front to just sort of stack it and put it all together. And the clock itself, I mean, we'll get to the facade in a minute, but that clock itself is a masterful build out. And it's just a, an icon or, or a showpiece before you get to the ride. Like it's an insane amount of effort for something that just kind of sits there in front of the attraction. Oh yeah. And it's massive too, right? It's not like they, they, they don't need that big of a facade to cover this building. They could have done some other things, but to, to dedicate that much space to it and make it that much of a presence. It's, it's amazing. And I think second, maybe only to the castle, it's the most iconic thing at almost, I think at every Disney park. Well, I mean, the ones that have it outside, I know like in Orlando, it's, it's inside. You don't, you don't get that. You don't get that impact when you walk up to the ride. And it's a very different feeling. You see it inside. Um, but uh, wherever it's outside, I think it's like uh, the iconic structure of the park. You know, when we were in Paris, uh, I, I was adamant we have got to ride It's a Small World in, in Paris. I've right. got to see what it's like. And I also have to know that I'm riding It's a Small World when it's impossible to ride the one in Anaheim because it's closed. Like, I just <laughs> love the idea of like, don't worry, I'm on the second shift of Small World. <laughs> yeah. But their facade is a lot more painted. It has a lot yep. more color and, and sort of layering to it. And, you know, the white with just a shade off from Tiffany blue, like that that nice mid-century baby blue. I love it. And all of the gold at the top, that was Walt insisted on putting that gold up there. 
And that's one of the moments where he goes behind his brother and like, we can afford the gold. Don't, don't, don't listen <laughs> to my brother. We, we got money for gold. Don't worry about it. We can put, hey, Pepsi's flipping the bill. We can put gold <laughs> on this thing. But, you know, I, I think about this, Jared. That small world clock. There's probably a lot of people that haven't stopped and think about how difficult that thing is to build with the way that the numbers flip over. Mm-hmm. The ceremony that it does at the the quarter of all the hours, the way yep. that the timepieces move around, like that's one of those things where at Disneyland, it's just part of all the amazingness all around you. Mm-hmm. But but imagine if you came to my house and I had that in my side yard, you'd be like, yeah. <laughs> my friend Mark's insane. He's got the world's biggest <laughs> clock in the side of his house. You know what I mean? Like I always try to imagine things in Disneyland not in Disneyland. And that's when you really understand the, the, the scope of them. Like if that clock was in the middle of South coast Plaza, mm-hmm. people would be lined around it all the time. Be like, look, but look at the South coast Plaza clock. I've been bringing my kids here since 66. We right. love this clock. We have photos in front of the kids at every birthday in front of the clock. Like, but in Disneyland, it's just awesome on top of awesome. Oh, for sure. I, I think that was one of the things I noticed in uh, when I went to Japan. Um, they're very big on this kind of stuff, too. I, I think other countries are as well in Europe and stuff like that. But um, in Japan, they, they go to great lengths to sort of entertain on this sort of, you know, here it feels like in the United States, like, well, that's not going to make us money. So why are we going to spend so much on the outside? Let's put it all inside. But Japan, like they have, a, like there's a Studio Ghibli uh, clock that they created, very similar to the scale isn't as big. But it's the same kind of thing where you wait until it hits a certain time and then all this stuff starts happening. And, and it's just a clock. That's all it is. It doesn't advertise anything else other than it's on the side of this big building. So, uh, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. And I think uh, even even now... Um, we're, we're moving away from that stuff, right? Yeah. Like everything has to go inside. It has to be a faster ride or something like that. Um, so uh, I, I, I do would love to see more of the sort of charm that we see so heavily. Like that's all small world is, is charm. Um, and if I could see more charm in other parts of the park, I would, I would love that. You know, I definitely agree with you that, that we're running low on charm because mm-hmm. it's attractions based on movies, movies, movies. And, the Pixar movies, I know they have a lot of charm to them, mm. but throwing them all in the pier in the Pixar burrow, burrow barrio, uh, it <laughs> it it doesn't it doesn't give it a lot of room right. to really show the the charm of some of those characters. I mean, you know, you want to make me cry, make me an up house, you mm-hmm. know, and then I'll put my little grape soda pen on and 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 just get all choked up and then go, I wish I would have watched the rest of the movie, know how it ends. But the first mm. 10 minutes, I was like, you got to watch the first 10 minutes. And I just <laughs> did. And I stopped. I was like, Oh, that was great. But when you look at this attraction, I do see its influence with millennium Falcon smugglers <laughs> run. And that there is a massive showpiece out front of the building, adding that level of storytelling. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, you still get that every now and again when there's space for it. But then you look at something like Indiana Jones, which is a beloved ride, which is sort of in the middle of Disneyland's history. And that was a moment where they didn't have the space. Like Indiana Jones and Star Tours are kind of really robbed of being able to give a total guest experience because of the footprint that they were wedged into. That's true. Yeah, I know that's the thing with the IP for me is that the IP is a direction. Um, when you look at something like Small World, it's not 
it's not based on something. Right. Uh, you know, it, it is in that if you look at culturally, we're right. going on some familiar icons and things like that. But otherwise, it's not like this is that movie you saw and this is that thing you know you love from that movie. This is just like going like so for the heart with this thing. I think those are the things that are uh, that that we're missing now because it has to be a replica of something or or something like that. This just sort of exists out of nothing, which is. Just and I also got to say, I'm watching this film behind you. Mark is running the small world like a ride-through video behind him. <laughs> this kid keeps putting his hands out into the water. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, that, so that's like the difference I think between the charm we saw and, and then something that was created uh, back then. When you look at the facade that Rolly Crump put together to match the the theme of everything else. It's a really masterful design, and it, it goes to show that, you know, simple is great or, or streamline is great, but there has to be a level of complexity to really sell something that's stripped down. And mm-hmm. the beauty of the facade is that all those different columns and shapes are just two feet in front of one, recessed mm-hmm. two feet this way, three feet that way. You got some sight lines that start to bend and kind of go off at the top. And it's even though it's just triangles, squares, rectangles, and circles, it's Mm -hmm. the complexity of that layout. And then the way that they were able to take that composition and repeat it on the wall where the parade comes and goes, Mm -hmm. uh, the Mm -hmm. different towers all around, like that aesthetic is repeated so much that I I asked uh, our good friend Philander this, um, yeah. Two episodes ago, and I'm going to ask you this right now: Does Small World to you feel like part of Fantasyland, or does it just feel like it's its own thing? Um, uh, it's definitely to me, it's its own thing. Me too, uh, because it doesn't fit the the, the style of, of Fantasyland any longer, um, and it didn't even before the the turnover, the the redesign of Fantasyland. It doesn't fit the aesthetic of Toontown, which is right behind it, which which really sort of bookends this thing and makes it all part of Fantasyland. And, and we do call it, what, what do they call that area? Like the arcade? What, what is that? It's, it's <laughs> the small, wor- small world promenade or, or mall. Promenade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like it really has its own entrance. There's nothing that's happening, you know, for quite a while between there. Um, just the way that it is situated. Even the Fantasyland Theater, which is right next door, doesn't match the the style of that thing. At Christmas time, they decorate it in a different aesthetic than they do the rest of the park uh, at Christmas time. So I know that it is part of Fantasyland in that it's situated there, but I do feel like sort of like the way Matterhorn doesn't feel like Fantasyland or right. Tomorrowland for sure or anything like that. It, it's, it's its own little sect. I think the the interesting thing about small world, its placement um, mm-hmm. at night and in particular during the holidays, and you bring up a great point is that Toontown closes early due to fireworks. So that's just a, a dead zone. You, you can't even really go past, you know, the, the train station there. Mm-hmm. The theater stops running around sunset. They don't do uh, Mickey's map in the evening hours. So around the holidays, you know, they have all of those speaker and light rigs that we'll talk about in a minute. They all have their own individual vintage Christmas wreath on them. You know, the the white Christmas tree mm-hmm. with the blue, the teal blue uh, ornaments and stuff. They all have a different symbol inside of them. You know, one will have a toy soldier. One will have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a doll. And when you, you work your way up to it, it really just is kind of its own burrow of the park. And it's so 
separated that other than the train and the monorail, you know, it's not like when you're waiting to ride Alice and you keep hearing, you know, the Yeti yelling right. and, and people screaming, you know, it, it it's not like one of these other attractions where you get a bleed over from something else. Like it is 100% in its own area. And, you know, the way that they use a cast member building and the grading, Mm-hmm. Casey Jr. is running right on the other side of you. Yep. You never hear it go by. You never hear any of that stuff. So it it really is isolated in its own little area. A couple of design aspects of it that are, I think, really interesting and worthy of exploring is the amount of animation in this thing. Fun mm-hmm. fact, it is home of 3,000 audio animatronic dolls. I counted nice. them all. 3,000 yes. in there. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. But if you look at the amount of characters in there and the amount of movement in there, it for basically the first animated like ride through, you know, dark ride ride through with, you know, tons of animation ha- happening everywhere like, you know, we go with the tiki room that idea evolves into this. Next is going to be pirates. Then we're going to go even further with the haunted mansion and adding optical illusions in there. You know, there's a lot of movement happening in this thing, and it's really three hundred, not three thousand. Okay. <laughs> ah, who's counting? Other I was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's an amazing attraction. I mean, I think it's the. You know, it's just that this thing has been such a staple of the park. It's been around forever. Everybody knows it. I think everyone goes through a phase where they absolutely love this. And, and then you have kids and then you take your kids to it and they love it, of course, like that. But, it, you know, it's often sort of teased for its uh, for the same thing that is appealing about it. It is teased for, right? Like the song is always a joke and things like that. But I, I think it's one of those things where, um, like, you, you kind of forget about one, like the, the the amount of real estate this thing takes up, but two, like even the technology that is on display here yeah. and it sort of keeps getting updated, but in this old fashioned way, right? Like they're not adding new fancy techniques to it. They're just fixing these things to, to maintain this sort of charm of it. And, and I think that's great. It's, a, it's the one area of Disneyland where I think is sort of a museum. Like let's, let's maintain this. Let's not update it. Let's just maintain this. Yeah, and I think that when you look at things that they've done to attractions like Pirates to just mm-hmm. make them feel a little bit more new, you know, they keep a lot of the the old guard in there. But, you know, things like adding in the Captain Jack Sparrow scene and for a while when we went through that fog that was projected animated animation on there, you know, that doesn't really happen with Small World. It, it stays mm-hmm. classic, but they give people an idea of its place in history, as I said a minute ago, you know, you have the Tiki Room, which is our first big um, animatronic exhibit where you're just mm-hmm. sitting in a bench. They had no idea of timing and storytelling. It's a small world gets put together at the World's Fair. And because of the Omnimover uh, style of the ride where, you know, you're constantly loading up a boat with a lot of parents and children in it, sending it off because it's just such a people eater. It was one of the most popular attractions at the World's Fair, but it was mm-hmm. also the one that you could always easily get on. So it was that real win-win of everybody loves it and you don't have to wait forever to ride it. It was so popular out of the gate and it made Disney think so hard about next moves. 
that Pirates of the Caribbean had already started construction back home in Anaheim. They had already mm-hmm. poured the concrete foundation to make a subterranean like Pirates walkthrough. And they're like, what are we thinking? We got to put people in a Pirates boat. And when you think about the way that corporate structures work, corporate budgets work, to have a true visionary like Walt that goes, you know what? I know you guys poured concrete. Tear it out. Yeah. We, we got to make these walkways wider. We got to put a boat in there. That's the difference between Steve Jobs' Apple and Tim Apple's Apple. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's the difference between, um, you know, the Disney you get today and the Disney you get with that crazy genius behind the wheel where it's their business. They built it. Jim Henson says, hey, look, I want it to go this way. He's Jim Henson. You don't argue with him. You go, well, I know we were just right. getting ready to shoot the movie, but he decided he wants a blue, so let's go make Grover blue. You know what I mean? It's like that sort of like that insanity has a lot of weight that once it becomes a publicly owned business and people are, you know, groomed to get into their position, you don't get that kind of decision making anymore. Yeah, for sure. It's so weird to think of, like, I don't think of, I think maybe Apple, uh, it's weird to think of how the company was Walt, right? Like, and that's a strong, uh, I don't even know how to sort of phrase this. Like, it's his company, like, we go with his thing. Everything now seems very much by committee. Uh, Even if the company is started by one founder, it still tends to be like the fair way to do this, the right way to do this is by committee and, and all these different people get to have a say. And sometimes you just... You know, it's it's always going to end up being sort of a, a mixture of, of things from where it started. Um, so that's why I'm sure when, when Walt was gone, like to not have that sort of guiding factor, like where it was, it didn't matter if you liked it or you didn't like it or you agreed or you didn't. It's what Walt wanted and stuff like that. And I think, yeah, uh, but I think that kind of decision making seems gone now uh, it, on this level of business. It is. It's happening in one business that I can pull out of my back pocket. Okay. If something were to happen tomorrow and the world no longer had Elon Musk, Tesla mm-hmm. would be an insanely different company. But if he sure. just thinks building a blowtorch or flamethrower is funny, <laughs> he just makes it. And, you know, I, I don't <laughs> know true. if you've seen this little bit of pop culture, but Tesla took it upon themselves to make ventilators. Right. And being a forward thinking company, their idea was how do we make a ventilator that helps a human breathe? but make it with as many car parts as possible. Because if we get into the ventilator game and we're buying all the same pieces that everybody else is buying, mm-hmm. that defeats the purpose of helping out. We're actually now more competition in the marketplace. Right. So they built a very crude model that would work. And then they figured out how to replace it with as many Tesla parts as possible. And I, there's a YouTube video that shows them breaking it down and like literally the monitor that shows your breathing cycle is the screen that you would get if you were to buy a Tesla three. Mm-hmm. And they were like, this is from the Tesla three. This is from this piece of the car. And it it's like very like crude in its design, but you can be like, man, they figured out a way that a car could save your life, which mm-hmm. is wild. So I do think that it, that it exists, but I mean, these Walt Disney, Elon Musk, Steve jobs, Jim Henson, Mm-hmm. These are captains of industry. They're somewhere between visionary and genius. You know, these Tony Stark type individuals only come around every so often. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. But I, I think um, 
Disney being in such an interesting place because I think we forget how innovative it must have been at the time, oh. right? Like he's not just an animation guy. He's not just a, a feature film guy. Yeah, he's, he becomes a theme park guy, which he invented. He invents the theme park, right? Not not the carnival or a circus, but this whole other genre of, of entertainment. And And we kind of forget how pioneering that must have been at the time and how like instantly that is still the standard by which everything else is measured. So like I, I think from... For like he's just as much as a showman as he is an innovator, and I think it's Agreed. that mix that is so like intoxicating. Like Jim Henson, I think, and and I think what makes a lot of these people so interesting to us and why they become folk heroes is because they truly represent the American dream, right? Mm-hmm. Like that you can just be a guy of modest means, and that when you leave planet Earth, you just leave behind a legacy that has made billions of people have the most precious childhood memories or that one summer before mom and dad called it quits. I mean, like they have written so many beautiful memories into so Mm -hmm. many minds. And it's just like, you know, to touch that many lives in your lifetime is, is unheard of. I want to point something out real quick while I'm floating through the American uh, scene of it's a small (laughs) world. Ladies and gentlemen, I am, I am, the small world American story, because when you go through the American pavilion, you Mm. see cowboys by a barn. And then right next to them is the Hollywood Hills and that (laughs) rainbow that is Hollywood. And I am from Kentucky. I do live next to the Hollywood Hills. That room is the bricky room because I am the American dream that Walt dreamed of when a little dirty boat goes by. So there you go. That's me. (laughs) <laughs> that's perfect yeah well then I mean, it's nice to see america getting sort of the uh the abridged treatment that all the other nations are getting to so <laughs> yeah i mean they didn't make like whoa we got to do 10 hours of the american story <laughs> yeah but the american story has a lot of pieces that you would want your boat to go past very quickly so it, it does right. make there sense you go. all right probably my favorite design aspect of it's a small world and this is a very like subtle and slight thing that a lot of people don't pick up on But each land that you go through, because, you know, the whole attraction is based on geography, you know, what Mm -hmm. countries sit in what part of the world together. Each one of these showrooms has its own sun and it has its own moon, which symbolizes that no matter where you're at in this earth, the same sun and moon rises over us all. And that mm-hmm. is the one thing that repeats other than the children in each and every room. And I just think that is such a deep level of thinking of once again, this attraction is about unity. It's about the commonality of being on this planet that many times because of borders, because of race, because of religion, a lot of people have a hard time remembering that we're all brothers and sisters of planet Earth. And I think that that one little nod to design really does the emotional beat that is Disneyland. That is, that is very touching, Mark. That's very heartfelt there. <laughs> well, don't forget I also said bat soup at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, of course, of course. Like there, there is sort of nothing that went sort of unthought of in this thing. Everything feels very deliberate, but very sincere. And, and again, I think it comes back to the sincerity of this thing that, you know, everything just kind of lined up really well, right? Like the Sherman Brothers, this is the first song that they wrote out of, they were going to write three songs or something just to, to present. And they, this was the first one and they went with it. Like for it to come that easily, it just, it's 
it's pretty crazy. So, yeah, I think I think in many ways, um, you know, whether it's your favorite ride or not, it's sort of a perfect Disneyland ride. I mean, there are people that definitely don't like it. My sister is a very hardcore Disney fanatic. She has so much envy that her brother that she can't stand lives a stone's throw from Disneyland. Uh, (laughs) They're the type of family, her, my brother-in-law, and my niece, they're such a cute, loving, everybody in the family's best friends. They do the 10-day trips to Disney World. You know, they, mm. they're they that kind of family that can go to the park for the 10-day package or the all-week-long package and just, you know, crush the park every single day. She absolutely despises Small World. Can't stand oh. it, won't ride it. Just, I got her to ride the one out here once just to see the original. And halfway through, she's like, you got to get me out of here. Like, she can't, it's the song. She can't get past the song. Uh, I don't, I I don't understand. Like I can see a teenager being sort of sullen about it just because they think like they're too cool for something like this. But how can you hate this ride? Like it's so it's so I mean, sincere and sweet. It's like getting a Christmas card and being pissed off or something. You know, like uh, what is there to sort of hate about this ride? I don't know. I I can I listen to the song. I love it a I, lot. And, I love the Christmas track. I can't uh, get enough of the Christmas bro. track. How they got jingle bells and deck the halls that go together so well and repeat over and over again. I mean, this is kind of one of those fun facts. This is the type of fun fact that I don't really obsess over, but it is important to the conversation where we're at. The recorded It's a Small World song is mm-hmm. the most played recorded song in the history of songs. It's, right. it's estimated at something like 50 million plays because mm-hmm. it plays 1,200 times a day. At Disneyland alone, and that right. song is being played everywhere. So, I I like the song. I it, this ride really has a lot of emotional beats to me. And making a song that is about, you know, everything that makes this planet amazing has also given it a lot of its problems. And it just I don't know. There's just something about this song that really can it can really choke me up and 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 get to me. And I do love that the IP on this one is world peace like what a great ip to go after now as we know disneyland won't be done as long as there's imagination in the world uh maybe you've heard that once or twice so mm-hmm. it's a small world like everything at disneyland is on its own evolutionary path and here's some different things that have changed over the years and i'd love to get your opinion on this the big crazy thing that he did in 2008, they added 29 new Disney characters spread out all over the attraction, worked into the lands that their stories come from, tried as best as possible to take those characters and put them in the Mary Blair style. I think probably the most successful ones is Alice in the UK Pavilion and mm-hmm. Pinocchio and wherever Pinocchio is from. But <laughs> do you agree with this decision, like if if this landed on your desk and you were in charge of It's a Small World, would you rubber stamp that approved or you'd say, no, guys, I don't think this is where we put our characters? Um, uh, Gosh, this is a tough one. I, I don't think it needs it. I, I don't think this is a solution to anything. I, I don't think this makes a younger generation want to ride this more because they they you know, know these characters, because like you said, they've maintained the style. It looks just as old fashioned as the rest of the ride. So it's just kind of an anomaly. Um, This works well in the Asian countries for some reason, I think Um, they're not as, 
I don't know if they just have a different relationship with this. They like this ride, but they don't they aren't bothered by the characters being in it. I think that's a distinctly American. So the Asian one thing. doesn't have Disney characters crowbarred in? No. But the Asian one does, and it was a big success. I think oh, okay. I want to say Hong Kong. And so I think that's why they thought, well, let's let's do that here. It's so popular there. Why don't we do it here? Um I think Tokyo as well has it. Um I I would because this is sort of the original one, like I'd want to see them plus this thing in a way that just further enhances what it is. Mm. Bringing the Disney characters into it adds a different dimension that I don't think we need. I don't think it hurts it. I don't think it detracts it. I, I just don't think we, we need it. If they were to sort of, I don't know, add some different representations of the, the cultural thing, you know, just adding to what's already there. I in think the that same would have style. Been, yeah, that would yeah. have been great. Um, and just sort of keep building on this pretty perfect idea instead of saying like, oh, this needs to be rescued by Cinderella and Disney princesses and Lilo and Stitch and things like that. Again, I, I don't think it detracts. I don't think it ruins it in any way. Um, and, and, and again, with this kind of attraction, it's going to be around for so long that people won't even notice or care anymore. It'll just look like a Hawaiian girl on a surfboard and a dog. Um, but uh, I, I could see why there was the controversy. Uh, I wasn't that upset about it when they announced this, but um, I, I don't see it as a solution to anything, if that sort of answers the question. What so about you? I've only ever known it this way because oh, two, yeah. okay. 2008 <laughs> is, you know, I I don't end up going through. It's right. a small world until I think 2011. Um, Did you go on Florida, though? I have no recollection of riding it in Florida. None okay. whatsoever. Okay. None whatsoever. Um, so... To me, it's like it does feel a little crowbarred in at moments mm-hmm. because the style isn't always an exact one-to-one ratio. You know, like it doesn't always right. perfectly line up. But what I do enjoy about it is when I'm on the boat and I hear a kid in the boat go, Pinocchio. Like when I hear a kid get excited that they spotted Ariel in the mermaid sure. area. So, you know... It, I don't think it was necessarily for me. It doesn't break it for me, but it would be a hard decision to make because, you know, um, generationally, when you look at kids nowadays, if you just showed them one of the small world dolls, they'd go, what cartoon what is this like YouTube or cartoon or a movie? Right, like, right. Kids look at everything now needing to know what property it is associated with. So as the evolutionary needs of Disneyland shift for the way that our culture shifts, it, it does make sense to me. In 1997 is when they started to do the small world holiday mm-hmm. and man, Oh man, what a jackpot they hit when they decided to start doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just perfect. Like I said, it feels like Christmas anyway. It feels like the displays you would see at a mall around Christmas right. time. Or right. so, certainly when I was little and, and before we were, you know, like nowadays, there's so much for kids to see when we were little, you know, any kind of thing that was addressed for kids specifically was amazing. And you wanted to see it over and over again because you didn't have YouTube and you didn't have the internet to watch this thing over and over again. So it brings me right back to that thing where like the mall would do a Christmas display and it's like a bear with a Santa hat or something and it moves and so you want to every time you went to the mall like can we go see this right thing? right but that's why it feels like exactly that to me and it's sort of crude and like you know it's like it's not fantastic but when you're little in this time period that's amazing and you want to see that thing so that's kind of the the innate charm of this attraction for me all the time one of the things that small world kind of 
broke for me is every year one of the things my wife and I do is we go to New York City because we're right. big Christmas fans and we always go to the city in the holiday season and we go see, you know, all of the, the stores over by Central Park, you know, yeah. Macy's, yeah. Saxmith. We go to see all those store windows. And when you get used to sitting in a boat for 15 minutes and having displays all around you, you're like... Uh, it's like four windows. That's, that, that's <laughs> right, all you right. got for me. You know, it's like, I'm used to like, well, how am I going to get in a boat and go around that one window? Yeah. And so this is, it, it's Christmas on steroids. You know, like yep. my favorite yep. thing of a Christmas story is when they go yes. to the mall and that <laughs> whole big build out. And, you know, they got snow white in there to make a time period accurate. That would be a huge thing in that time period. But, I love that display in the movie and mm-hmm. this feels like that, but just infinite, you know, like yeah, 15 yeah. minutes of that. And, you know, so many more characters in, in movement. I think that's exactly, that is exactly what I was thinking of when we were talking about that. They show those kids reacting to just the window. There's a little like toy train set yeah. that's going around and the toys are out there and they just want to see it. It's like, it's like seeing that catalog of, of toys when you were little oh. and like, Everything felt so distant and like unattainable where now I think everything feels very close and, and sort of like, eh, I don't even care. Uh, this was like, it represents that time. So maybe, I don't know, maybe we're growing out of this type of attraction. I, I don't know. But uh, for me, it never, it never ceases to get old. One of the things that I loved about the Sears catalog, the, the wish book, <laughs> was, I mean, you would just, you would, I would just go page by page yep. looking at all the toys and you know yep. i think part of when you start to realize that you're destined for design and art and this sort of like critical thinking and disneyland strengthens all of those muscles that you have in your mind as an artist mm-hmm. i loved gi joe's as a kid but mm. what i loved even more than playing with them was the catalog that showed yeah. all of the different Joes. And and I love the commercials, the kids' commercials, where they'd have, you know, men our age build a backyard fort and then yeah. throw two eight-year-olds out there for a day. And like, oh, Cobra Commander! And it's like, I love that sort of architecture of the characters and their forts and the way that the train set runs through or where the Jeep goes in G.I. Joe. And It's a Small World is like going inside of that display. So let me ask you this. When you were little, though, playing with G.I. Joe's, did you, like, was this with other kids? Like, did you actually play? Like, I always enjoyed, like, especially with the Star Wars stuff, because I was very young when the first trilogy came out. And so, you know, we had all the toys and stuff like that. But I really liked sort of setting them up (laughs) in these, like, tableaus. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of less about, like, playing, like, oh, here we come. We're going to fight or something like that. And it was more sort of, like, setting it up, either recreating something for the movie or, like, how weird your toys looked if you took them outside. And then, you know, the scale shifts and you try to set up, like, rocks around it and make it look like things. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what I loved. I loved setting it up. Less, Less, like, acting out some kind of play but uh, to me that was the fun of it and I think a lot of that has carried over into my adulthood and, and what I do like with my work and stuff like that. I just like to see these little scenes set up I mean a lot of design is actually building those sets you know making yes. those those designs making those little vignettes that we love so much yep. to answer your question I can remember specifically around second to fourth grade like really like hardcore like tying strings everywhere in my room and you know yeah we were on missions and me and my friend Derek were like for sure on missions but I remember the last couple of years of playing with toys it's like 
um, we're not really playing with toys. We're just building a display for the toys. So I remember being like <laughs> fifth and sixth grade, and me and my friend had like a pack. Like, we're not going to tell anybody after school. We go in your backyard, and we built this like elaborate G.I. Joe layer on, on the edge of his mom's garden, you know? So, yeah, I, I think that that model making becomes a big part of it. And, you know, it's not that I'm a huge train guy. It's that right. I love the village that surrounds the train. That's <laughs> what I want to exactly build right. is the train village. That is exactly. I am obsessed with miniatures. And so, oh. so like storybook land is just like magnificent. Um, but I, I don't know that I have the patience to do that um, or the space, obviously, but I love that. I, and if you go to Epcot, they have a fantastic little train town in Germany. You'll just love it. I could stand there forever just watching this train go through this little town and all the little details they they add into it. Now they grow the trees to be sort of scale to that. I just, I can't get enough of that. Oh, bonsai trees. I've seen yeah. Karate Kid. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so my wife was asking me, you know, last year was my best Disneyland year ever. Mm. And it had a lot to do with you and I started doing the podcast, which was like, you know, it's it's a it's a date where I got to get together with my best Disney bud. We had to go to the park. We had to ride things to quote unquote research them, even though we've right, done it a thousand right. times. Like, you know, you and I going to the park, doing all of that, me getting into further in YouTube and making content and learning how to go to the park by myself, but taking people with me from all around the world and sharing things right. with them. And then sort of that that club of guys, you know. Louie, who's an architect that works for the park, and our friend Carrie, who's like a lifelong club member, and McBiff, who's a, a fellow uh, resident artist over at Wonderground, like, you know, meeting our friend Jonathan, who's an interesting guy, and just like sort of this crew of guys, right? Mm -hmm. Every couple of weeks, you meet the guys, you do a lap, we end up at one of the clubs or one of the restaurants, hanging out, having fun. <laughs> and Beth was just like, she's like, explain to me. She's like, I go to Disneyland. I got a pass. I love it. But explain to me why men in this age group really seem to love this thing that was built for kids. And I, I blew her mind. I'm like, well, you got to keep in mind that Walt built this when he was, you know, in this age bracket. And mm -hmm. what it is when you get to this age is Disneyland is the train set. It is the model village. It is mm -hmm. the miniatures. It is the construction of it. And I said, you know, look what everybody does. Think about that critical thinking and think about Disneyland. Like this is the model train set that I don't own as an adult because I don't have a basement because I live in Southern California. And she's <laughs> like, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. She's like, I'm, like, I didn't think you'd have an answer. I'm actually like blown away at that answer. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I never, I never quite thought of it in those terms, but yeah, especially like for me, um, Fantasyland, walking through Fantasyland, and um, you know, so and now great. I think I get the same thing from Galaxy's Edge more so than I do in any other area of the park. There's this weird scale that I just love because yeah. it's it's not real life scale. It, it, we, we're all sort of adjusting to the scale when you walk through that when you walk through those gates, right? Like this, everything changes and you're in this very specific world, but everything is built to that sort of main street scale, right? Yeah. Kind of real life, kind of smaller, but like not miniature, but charming. And that is maintained throughout, especially Disneyland. Uh, I think you lose some of that when you get to the bigger parks and they have the space and everything's like spaced further apart from each other that you, you start losing some of that perspective. But Disneyland, because it's so tight specifically, 
you, you get that. I think that's what works in Cars Land as well. It feels very separate from the rest of the park. But when you're in Cars Land, you're in this like conceptual <laughs> environment and it's all around you. And I think that's why I like Cars Land so much because it feels so complete and you feel so immersed in that thing. And, and I think Disneyland does that perfectly and, and no other park that exists does it like Disneyland simply because of the small footprint. Yeah. And you are absolutely correct in your assessment of Cars Land because Cars Land is fully immersive. When you mm-hmm. go there, you're only in Cars Land, the, the town of Radiator Springs. But if you look at that from above, you know, aerially, it, it's an incredibly tight piece of yep. land. It's a corridor with the cul-de-sac at the end mm-hmm. of it. And the way that they were able to make you go down essentially a hallway and not see anything else. It is absolutely fantastic. And when you get on the backside of, of Flo's cafe, and then you're looking over at the, the rock work there of Monument Valley, if there's not seagulls on the top to break how short those rocks are, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. But if the seagulls land up there, you're like, <laughs> either these rocks are really small or those are like 50 foot tall birds on top Giant of those birds. mountains. But yeah, yeah you're absolutely right that that, part of of dca feels very very disneyland and that was a moment when the imagineers knew we got to start pumping magic into this thing because it's on life support and mm-hmm. we got to really you can't take people 50 yards from disneyland and give them an experience that's not as great as the best park on planet earth yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think um, that's when they're doing their best. When they when they can be sort of like uh, all around you, dim- dimensional, and, and sort of immersive like that. Uh, so like, so they have like a Toy Story Land in 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 Florida. Um, but I don't know why it doesn't quite. I know you're supposed to be, you know, as with all things Toy Story, you're supposed to be sort of shrunk down to the size of a toy, so everything looks bigger than life and and everything. But I don't know. It doesn't quite achieve the same thing that it does. In Carsland, and again, Carsland is probably out of scale, right? right? Like it doesn't really make sense, but it feels right, and it feels small in the right way. And I think if they can do more of that in some of the other attractions, something like Paradise Pier or, or Pixar Pier, it looks like a pier. It's not. It's not trying to look like something else. It's trying to look like something that we are all very familiar with. Right. And they're sort of set dressing to say that this isn't just pier games. These are Pixar our themed games so i think we lose some of the storytelling there that we that we get so strongly in other areas of the park and and that's why i actually preferred paradise pier as paradise pier because i thought it was really convincing as an actual pier i think that it struggles a little bit thematically being these different neighborhoods (laughs) of of (laughs) pixar characters and you know i'm not a huge pixar guy but i understand its value and i think to some degree a lot of fans are getting shortchanged when my niece loves Inside Out. And when she heard there was an Inside Out attraction, she lost her mind. Then I yeah. walked her over to the emotional world and she goes, this is a baby ride. Let's go get pizza. <laughs> and we were like in and out in two seconds. Um, to sort of, you know, backtrack a, a little bit, though, going over to It's a Small World. Talking about the, the design and land and, you know, that Disney scale why that Disney yeah. scale is so perfect is the the first floor is an 
over-exaggerated first floor. It's like 125% scale. So it Mm -hmm. feels big and grandiose. But then the second floor is 75%. So it's a third scale. So it feels tighter. And then a third floor is half scale. So when you look at Main Street, the buildings around you feel big. But then as they get smaller, as they go up, it gives that feeling of Everything around you is storybook. It, it, it's big and overwhelming, but it's also small and charming. That sort of visual contradiction that is so different than everywhere else we go in our life. That's why, you know, when you go into like Doc's shop and Galaxy's Edge, it mm-hmm. feels so over the top, right? The ceiling so much more than what we need and the same with the market. But that that scale is great, which brings me to this question that I want to ask you as we get into some sort of final talking points of It's a Small World. Tower of the Four Winds. Yes. Okay, good. It didn't make its way back home. Right. Rolly wanted to bring it over. As he explained to me when I sat at his kitchen table, he really wanted to see it come back, but management didn't really want to pack it up, ship it out. They came up with a narrative like, well, this could hurt somebody. And then Rolly's like, well, I don't want to hurt anybody. And so basically they crowbarred the truth with Rolly to get him to convince Walt. Eh, right. Maybe because he was like, what do you think, Rolly? You want to bring it back? And he's like, if it's going to be a mess, we should probably just leave it here. I think about this all the time. What would Small World look like with the Tower of the Four Winds, a 110-feet-tall weather vane out there with all of that cool design and spinning around? And speaking of emotional whirlwind, there's a baby one outside of that attraction. But, Jared, do you think it's better that it didn't make it out from New York, or do you think that that promenade the mall would be better with the tower of four winds um i think it'd be really interesting if so he is notoriously unhappy with what they did when they he had designed this thing gives it to the subcontractor in los angeles and they created in a more structurally sound way supposedly right yeah he said it was too thick yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if they could with the technology now if they could make this in the way that he envisioned it especially while he's around like what a fantastic oh tribute that would be oh you know scale Lord. it down maybe so that it's manageable or something like that or just that it's you know it doesn't have to be as monumental on top of another structure like it was in the original fair but to have that and sort of complete that historical element of it without changing anything with the actual ride i think that would be like a no-brainer but i i I get it's one of those things again where it's not going to make more people ride the ride Uh, maybe you can make it sort of instagrammable or something oh yeah it would be a moment (laughs) you know it would be a moment sure yeah for sure but if there's some way that they can work that in i i think that would be fantastic he's hilarious but now i you 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 were to talk, able to talk to the man. Did you guys talk about this specifically on yeah. that episode? Yeah, we did. Because I was, I love that design and mm-hmm. the idea that it just got scrapped and it didn't come back together. Like I was so interested to hear, you know, how that all happened and having him explain to me how sort of middle management, you know, kind of twisted his arm a little bit. You know, he was right. unhappy with the fact. I think. It to, from what I gathered from the way that he was telling it to me, I think he regretted that he didn't like kind of stand up and make sure that that thing came back. But he was very unhappy. And, and I understood like 
every artist knows you send something off to the printer, your enamel pin shows up, and you're like, I thought it'd be more blue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Line weight looks a little heavy. Yeah. I yeah. thought that that would be, I thought that black on black would be easier to see, even though they told me 10 times it wasn't going to work. And I insisted, yeah. eh, it'll work. Trust the process. So the Tower of the Four Winds was 110 feet tall. Mm. I want to play a little game where they would have placed it. And I'm going to give you some other Disneyland heights because sight lines are super important in Anaheim. Mm -hmm. Sleeping Beauty is 77 feet tall. Right. And it sits up on a graded mound. And Matterhorn, the tallest thing in Anaheim, is 147 feet tall. So at 110... Mm. You're only like a three-story building away from being Matterhorn and height. Right. So I've often thought where this would have been placed, and this would have added a lot of complications to things, but I think it probably would have been placed mm-hmm. over on the that mall area, the, 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 the higher area. Oh, okay. I think that you would have walked up and you would have seen the Tower of the Four Winds over by the water. And then you would have shimmied left to the attraction because in my mind that if it's placed there, Matterhorn covers it from most directions. But Mm. if it goes over to the right or if it goes over in front of where the Fantasyland Theater is at, I think then it's popping up somewhat above Sleeping Beauty. And, you know, Uh. that's a no go at Disneyland. Right, right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think that's so. I think we should combine that with something we talked about previously. Have it a Tower of the Four Winds restaurant, and Ooh. that thing represents that restaurant off Tower to the sides. Yeah, <laughs> I love Tower Tots. So if they can make it like a structure, and that represents a money making structure, then that all that money goes into building this restaurant, and not just building a structure in in sort of a sentimental way. And then that sort of makes sense. The only other place I was thinking of was sort of a smaller version on top of the toy store that serves oh. as sort of the exit of the oh. uh, of the attraction. Um, which just recently I found out that used to be the entrance to the attraction. That that path used to be how you entered it, but then you'd exit where we now enter it. But they found that they can uh, queue up more people that way. Oh, that is that fascinating. That was the, uh, the entrance. Uh, this was a long time ago, obviously, before they did the, the redo of the line. But um, I had never heard that before, so I, I, I didn't really research it to know if that was true, but that's... I've never I, heard that. If that's true, that is a, that would be a fascinating flow of people because... I'm not a big fan of exit of the gift shop, but I feel like that's one of the very few instances where it works as about as well as that concept is going to work. Like Mm -hmm. I prefer that way over like the Buzz Lightyear one or the Star Tours one is just a disaster. Uh, The Guardians of the Galaxy mission breakout, that one's not that bad, but I feel like the small world one's nice because you have the ability to decide. And I think that the structure looks nice, sort of adjacent to everything else that's around it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Plus, I have some merchandise in there, so uh, I'm all for it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you love it being there. (laughs) Uh, How were your cells today? So the the interesting thing, though, is they do a really good job of when they can pay 
plain nods to their history. And like, you know, when you look at Tony Blair's build out for Disneyland Paris, he snuck in so many things that they wanted to build a Disneyland that they couldn't get in there. Like, you know, the glass atrium that's above their um, teacups, you know, that was something right. out right out of uh, discovery Bay. So, the Tower of the Four Winds isn't totally dead, you know, because they do a good job. And as we see something eventually happen with Tomorrowland, we were so close to getting mm-hmm. rid of it. And then the world went on pause. I think at some point we will see Fantasyland grow and evolve and eat up more of that space. It'd be interesting to see if that could come together. But I have this question for you. Do you think that we'll ever see a Disneyland that goes beyond past it's a small world facade. Like, will we ever see a park expansion where we cruise around the side of it and that's all a facade of something else? And, you know, maybe the, the train depot is actually something that you can see and there's an attraction that exists about beyond it. Or do you think that that is a hard perimeter that will be an outer wall of Disneyland until the day? Well, I don't want to say the day she dies. Do you think it'll be there at the 1000th anniversary? I'll say that. That, that feels safer. Hmm. So I think like with the Mickey's, um, the Mickey ride coming uh, for Toontown, I think that saves Toontown, right? That saves that way beyond it. I guess if you went around the other way where the parade route goes, if if that just continued and we went to another attraction, I could see maybe like a, like an Indiana Jones treatment where you, you enter there, but it takes you quite a ways back sort right. of like what they're doing with mickey uh, i could see that like maybe another big attraction or, or a, a big attraction and a restaurant or something over in that corner um, but i probably would look at that as a nice like it's such a perfect end right there and you're pretty close i think you're pretty close to the freeway there aren't you aren't you getting kind of like it can kind of wrap around and go back to like where the buildings are the offices are now you know Iger said the plan was if it's not for the guests it's coming out of the resort right and that would be our way to that huge green cast member building yep yep so if there's a way to get back there yeah because I mean if you go to the right because Utopia and Tomorrowland is almost like right on the edge of the park and there's an interesting thing when you're coming up ball road and you're getting on the five you can see the small world facade lit up for the holidays that's when it's bright enough to really see it up there so but i think that if you were to hook to the left because Mm -hmm. actually those parade uh carts they live behind toontown like Mm -hmm. the parade goes a very long way before it actually goes on stage so my vote is i don't know if it'll be in my lifetime but maybe in your child's lifetime, not you, I mean, the person right. listening home, there's no children here. <laughs> um, we're married to the land. But um, I do think at some point we will see something that goes beyond small world. And right now as a simpleton, that just blows my mind. Yeah. Oh, no, that'd be, that'd be like I've had, I've been fortunate enough to come in, like enter through, there's a, there's a hallway in Toontown that you come through through that back way there. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty exciting. I remember one time, not, not too long ago, I had to go in early in the park and then they said, you can find your way out. Right. And I'm like, Oh yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. I was so excited to be able to sort of walk back there. And then I actually did sincerely get lost trying to find my way back to that uh, team Anaheim building or whatever they're calling it. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of space back there and, and it's sort of a, it's it's definitely a functional aspect where you can enter the park through through different ways without having, actually having to go, you know, in in uh, the entrance or you know avoiding crowds and 
bringing people back in, but there's a ton of space back there. So I could definitely see it slowly creeping towards that building. Uh, and then either that building becoming another hotel or um, becoming another attraction. I think, I think that's inevitable. Yeah. I think eventually we'll see that happen. Speaking of being backstage in areas, I was once backstage Disneyland and I, there was a massive tent next to where I was at and I like poked my head around the corner and it was <laughs> all of the parade vehicles yeah. parked and they park with them like literally four inches from each other. And I'm like, Whoa, yeah, that's yeah. the whole parade sitting in like what looks like a department store. And I, I've been fortunate enough to go to the Fox lot um, in LA mm-hmm. a lot. And I go there to screen movies to review on the show. And I've gotten to the point where I get the access to the lot where I don't need an escort. So yeah, yeah. I might take my long way back to the car sometimes. <laughs> and the last time I'm like, dude, I've got an hour and a half to kill before I literally go up to the top of the hills to interview uh, a cinema cinematographer. When this movie's over with, I'm just going to cruise around. So I came out of the, the screening room. Nobody's... Nobody's babysitting Bricky. I could just go wherever I wanted to go. Right, right. But just my luck, a fire had broke out, and there was (laughs) fire trucks everywhere and firefighters everywhere. I go, oh, man, this sucks. There's like a fire. And I was going to do like an hour and a half of exploring. Well, once I got past all the fire trucks and got close to the exit, I was like, they're filming 911 for Fox. I just, I fell victim to props in a movie scene. I'm like, you idiot. Of course it's not what on a fire. <laughs> oh, hillbilly. That's why my story is the little boat that goes past the barn to the edge of Hollywood. Okay. Well, shucks. Yeah. So the area that you and I like to hang out on that you dream of turning into a, a cafe Mm-hmm. that area that's all graded up and, you know, there's lots of different seating and it, it does feel like a big footprint for really not a lot happening. Right. That was built for a viewing area. That's a platform for light magic. Now light magic was the parade that mm-hmm. was going to replace the 24 year old main street electrical parade that everybody loved It was going to replace that. It was going to be the best parade ever. And the reason why that platform is built is because this parade would have a couple of big, like, performance numbers. Mm. One would happen right there in front of Small World. Another one would happen over in front of the castle. And then there would be one on Main Street. Now, if you think about it, forever, Small World, the castle, and Main Street now has these pop-up lighting rigs. Right. The ones on Main Street lay flat during the day, but they come up vertical at night for the parade lighting and just the ambient lighting of Main Street. Mm-hmm. There's lighting towers around uh, the hub if you look for them. And over in Small World, there's a couple of big towers. One is the tower we now know that projects the um, holiday show every 15 minutes on the front right. of the facade. Well, all of this was built for light magic which was a huge success because in 1997, it ran from May to September. May to September in 1997 is all that it ran for. So that goes down as one of the biggest Disneyland flops ever. If you think about all of that infrastructure, designing an entire parade, and you run it for four months only. Mm. Heard about this parade? Like I did not. 
see this parade like it's sort of a notorious <laughs> little blip in the history of it like i wonder did, have you watched this thing online and everything have you have you researched this and and checked i have there, it's hard because it was only around for four months and in 1997 everybody didn't have a camera in their pocket <laughs> um right right so, so it's hard to research but it's interesting because it was a really good idea the idea for this parade is that there would be pixies in it and in these designated mm-hmm. areas every um cart or every ride vehicle would have a, a movie screen that would pop up or would be a part of the you wouldn't notice and so it would project onto the parade and so the idea was is that right. it's a parade until it lands in these hubs and then in these areas it becomes a projection show and then the pixies would all probably be lit up and then there would be cannons where it would seem as if the pixies were sprinkling pixie dust all over everybody. It's a really good idea. Yeah. I just think in 1997 they were probably 20 years too early because a lot of what they wanted to do in this parade ended up becoming right. true in Paint the Night. Right, right. So I just think a lot like, you know, a lot of the products that really made Apple famous, going back to what we talked about earlier, when Steve Jobs got fired from Apple, the company that he co-founded, he Uh started Next Computer. And in Next Computer, all he did was finesse over the details, hardly made any products whatsoever. But the iMac that you and I both have, a monitor with the computer behind it, basically deconstructing a laptop where it's screened with computer behind it. That was one of his ideas, a a monitor that would float up. The iMac was one of his ideas. So, you know, we do see in these corporations, sometimes the idea is just way ahead of the technology, but I do love that all of that infrastructure that we use today is there for an attraction that ran or parade that ran four months, and that mall is forever there for an attraction or a parade that was there for four months, which is insane. I know. I, I am. I am surprised that it's not utilized for something. Like it used to be overflow for the for the small world stuff when the line would get crazy for holiday and things like that. When the parades come through, it was problematic. But now that that's been sort of um, corrected by doing the new queue, I'm wondering if they are going to do something with that space because. It is valuable real estate, and and it just seems like I don't know. I don't, even if they sort of extended Fantasyland that way a little bit more and tied in sort of uh, Matterhorn and, and that area and just pushed a little bit more towards Small World, I could see that. But um, it is it's a it's a charming, beautiful area. I would hate to see it go, but I'm surprised that it stays. Well, right now they have moved cafe tables and chairs up there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it has, yeah. even since you and I started eyeballing it, it has evolved a little bit. You know, my number one dream for Fantasyland is that that water stays, that eventually you would walk out onto the dock and the dock would keep going. And that would be the entranceway to our second castle, which would be Belle and the Beast's castle. And mm. we would get that dark ride, trackless dark ride that's coming. To, is that going to Tokyo? currently on hold they're gonna wait and see when they can announce it but yeah yeah well everything i've seen about that attraction looks fantastic the animatronics Mm -hmm. are a1000s but done in a cartoon way which makes them look even more realistic in a bizarre juxtaposition uh being in the 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 teacups that can actually move around and dance to to the numbers Mm -hmm. and you can see animatronics in the middle of the room that we're dancing around i just think that that would um fit really really well there so 
I would think that that would make this area safe, but I do see it getting converted over to like a, a cafe. And if you think of it in a cafe sense, it would feel very much like being in Paris where they build these little cafes, like, you know, tight, narrow ones in the city where it's just like a little thing wedged between the water and small world. So I, I do think that something cool could fit in that little footprint. Do you, do you see ever uh, extending small world to something else? Is it always just small world? Like, that's why I like the idea of a restaurant, right? It extends, it, it sort of expands and ex- not exploits, but it expands that, that theme of small world for that whole area, which we've said is sort of its own little area. There's so much in there that has become Disney IP on its own without representing a film or something like that. Right. Um, do, you, do you see there as a way to sort of extend that into something else? That's why I think a restaurant works really well because it's, it's a restaurant. It's not like another attraction. You don't want a second small world, but it's a way to sort of carry thematically some of the great design work there. Yeah. I mean, if they did a cafe and all the drinks were and, and snacks were named, you know, like think about if there was a, a macaroons and they were all different, like, spices from around the world and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like whatever goes there, it's a natural fit to theme it off of, of, of Small World. Do you believe that Small World is a forever attraction? Um, yeah, I, I, I do. Because I think, like, it's, it's too... Uh, to me, it's sort of like how we were talking about if they were to get rid of Toontown. It, it's too symbolic to get rid of something like that. Like... Um, I mean, we go nuts if we we remove a bench that was there since Walt was around, you know. So to remove something like this, I think is like removing a, a vital organ of the park or something like that. It might, might not be the most exciting thing, but um, I think it's so part of what we think of when we think of Disneyland. It'd be like, well, let's get rid of the castle and and do something else. I think it's right up there with the castle as being an iconic piece. Yeah, I I, I think because of the World's Fair because of mm-hmm. what it symbolizes, because of being in that crucial moment, I say that forever in that park, the Tiki Room, It's a Small World, Pirates, and Haunted Mansion, those four are safe till the end of time. I just don't see any of those four attractions ever getting yanked out. I, I can't think of anything that could be a safer bet than those four Disney icons. Mm, I agree. So let me ask you this a little off topic, but we we talked very highly about Snow White, Scary Adventure very early on in this podcast. And yeah, now that's getting a, a refurbishment that we didn't see coming at the time, at the time, but not too long after that, we started hearing this. How do you feel about that? Does that is that not as sacred as some of these things? We are still getting a Snow White ride. We're getting it updated in a very dramatic way, though. How do you feel about that? I think that it's a good idea. Because yeah. I don't think that it's a snow. Uh, it's a Snow White. <laughs> it's a Snow White after all. My favorite. I, I don't think that it was a perfect attraction. Mm. I don't think that it held up as well as It's a Small World did. Um, and I think that the things that they are doing to it will make it better. Um, also, this will be the third time now that they have mm. reworked Snow White. Right. I am a little concerned because of bad weather. They took the outer scrim off and I have footage of the new paint job. I'm not going to mm. overly judge it until it's done, done. Right. Uh, but, Oh, it is drastically less scary. And I, I really always enjoyed that the outer facade of that building 
looked kind of like a haunted house. Like it just mm-hmm. looked like the creepy neighbor. You're like, eh, I'm not going to try to sell her candy bars. Let's just go yeah. to the next door neighbor. <laughs> Even though I would argue, I think Pinocchio is a way scarier a- attraction than Snow White. I, I think I, ideologically Pinocchio is scarier, but <laughs> there's so many skeletons in Snow White. Yeah, I think true. that's like, like there's dungeons, like you're in the dungeon for so long. Um, I think it's just the majority of the, and because it's like, it's the one, um, one of the few sort of princess based yes. attractions. Which um, is I weird that there's not more of those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As we wrap up talking about uh, it's a small world. I do believe it's a forever attraction. I believe that it is really showcases the best of that crucial time period in Hmm. the park's uh, long and rich, rich history. I do know that there was a moment when they were going to do the whole, let's make a movie about it. I don't know how you make Hmm. a movie about it. I'm glad that that never came to market. I think that a movie would break that it just is what it is and it doesn't need any explanation because Hmm. if you've ever been to earth and fun fact, Everyone who's wrote it has been to Earth. Um, I think it just makes a lot of sense. My favorite thing inside of the ride is I love the Mary Blair doll. <laughs> yeah, I love that she has a doll in there. If you want to find her, she's in the Paris exhibit. Um, yep. When you come around, there's sort of a character that's on the backside of the Eiffel Tower Curly blonde hair, has a balloon. That is Mary's doll to pay tribute to her for creating that. That's one of those little things that really um, really kind of like chokes me up. You know what I mean? To be long gone from this world, but to be a doll in a ride that was once on your easel. The crazy job that your friend's like, you sure you want to take that? That wall guy's kind of crazy to work for. I got it. Don't worry, Jerome. Yeah. I got it. I could make this happen. See, that kind of stuff, I love those details. And to me, that would be a fantastic way to sort of plus this attraction. Like every few months, maybe there's a, a specific thing or a couple of things like like how people are obsessed with hidden Mickeys. You drop something new into that attraction, like a little doll or something. It's like every time you go, you have to find this character or this thing within the scene. And it really gets, I think that adds like a game element to it that kids like, and it makes you sort of look at it again. They did this similarly when they do the Easter egg hunts now at Disneyland and right. all the parks. And it's amazing how fun that is. So I think something like that without changing the feel or the message of the ride is probably the best way that they can plus it and make it so that you want to keep riding this thing over and over again and try to find all these little little bits. I like the idea of putting a QR code on all the dolls' faces so that when you ride it, you can <laughs> scan their faces and be like, oh, her name's Stephanie. <laughs> I think that wouldn't ruin it too much, <laughs> putting a QR code on their face. Um, you know, your idea is great. What, what country is Stephanie in? <laughs> oh, me Stephanie, my lucky charms. <laughs> I think that um, I think that that's a great idea because if ever pushed to a budget or if they wanted to make it a special thing, you could do like an mm. egg hunt or a, a scavenger hunt just in small world and you could mm-hmm. have it be the type of thing where it would be on your mobile device and as you're going through it's right. like eight things pop up on your screen and you're like looking around like oh i found the chair i found the you know the ukulele like right. all those type of things that's that's actually a great idea as we wrap up our conversation on um it's a small world what is your favorite if you had to pick an item or a design element like what is your favorite part of this of this great attraction 
Uh, I like the kids in the flowers, the little Dutch kids in the flowers, little wooden shoes and yeah. stuff like that. I think that right by there is the girl with the singing geese. These are all very iconic, obviously, images of it. But I'm no stranger to cute. And so to me, it's like I'm looking for the absolute cutest thing. And I really like the the, the kid dolls are my favorite, the children dolls, mm. more so than the toy dolls, which, you know, they're kind of aged and they have like a retro look. And there's some of them are kind of scary looking and stuff like that. But um, I think that the children dolls are my are absolutely my favorite ones, and then you know different ones. I like the the girls in the grass skirts. I think oh, that's so cute them. the way they do the little <laughs> action with the yeah, hip. love that, I love that. Yeah, totally cute. So it's little things like that. I think little little ways they use the animatronic aspect of it cleverly, um, and they use it very well in this, like in such a limited way, but so effectively. I think it's those things that I that I love the most. For me, my favorite thing is standing out in front of small world at night preferably christmas but i'll do it any night of the year and i love i just get a rush when i see the trains pulled up into the station yeah Yeah. and when the train goes by and the people on the train are lit perfectly that they're just silhouettes and you see the silhouettes of ladies wearing the mini uh bows and and Mm -hmm. people wearing mickey ears and i love balloons i will always wave because when that silhouette waves back to me i just feel like a character in a train set like i just feel like i'm on that table at a weird flea market in ohio you know what i mean like i just (laughs) feel like i'm in the snow globe like it just to me that is one of those magic moments that yeah rise of the resistance is unbelievable but standing there and waving at that train is pretty fantastic too Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Oh, and, and so outside, from the outside, the clock dolls are obviously, uh, have always been one of my Is this all going to be a plug? Like, yeah, are, it are, really are, is. It really is. Are times that scary for you up. that that's all you're going to do now is hawk <laughs> stuff on this show? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was saying, thinking about this when we were talking about the show, like, that would be a bucket list thing to to see them decorate for Christmas, to, to, to witness any aspect of that, whether it's when the ride is down and you see them in there working and, and how they manage to put all this stuff up. Oh, man, I would just die to, to see any part of that. If they did like a super fan pass holder ticket where yes. I pay 150 bucks and I get to ride the boat through while they're decorating it <laughs> all night long, dog, all night long. I would do that. I would give anything for that. And I, they would hate me. Cause I'd be like, if you want me to jump out of the boat and help you, I will. <laughs> Those lights look heavy. I can, I can hold them and feed them up to you. Exactly. I mean, think about it. There's somebody who's like, Oh God, I gotta go decorate that thing again. And we're just like, yeah. I'd pay $200 to do it. <laughs> it's like, let's tell yeah, let's tell Philander. We'll pay a bit, big bucks for that tour. Let's get that tour on the books. <laughs> oh, and he'd have fun facts. You know, he's like, see those lights right there. Those are the type Walt had in his farm in Missouri. Now those are circular bulb, <laughs> three inch quarter bulb. That's the type of bulb he had. He always made sure that they had those on the tree for the kids. Um, Real quick as we wrap up today, and hey, everybody, yeah. I hope you had fun going to It's a Small World. I'm not even going to say Fantasyland. Going to It's a Small World. As Jared and I are, are now walking down this beautiful corridor with the Matterhorn up to our left and, and Alice over to our right. Don't underestimate Alice. That is that is a great, great Fantasyland dark ride. I love okay. it so much. Perfect. But as we're coming up to this corridor on the outside of the castle, you need to use the bathroom? No, I'm good. All right, I'm good, too. As we're rolling up to Pixie Hollow, and because I'm a kid and I always stall, can we cut through here and so we can catch the little random light show? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the fountain show? The light show? Oh, Absolutely. I love, I love that. 
it happens every 37 and a half minutes. Nobody knows when it happens. It just all of a sudden <laughs> it starts happening. Like, whoa, free magic. I'll take it. But as we are slowly working our way around the hub and I go over and do the sign of the cross in front of Walt. Thank you so much, sir, mm. for building this for us. As we're working our way down Main Street, I just want to ask you, bud, you think Disneyland goes back to feeling normal after all of this? Uh, I think it's going to take some time, uh, but I think, uh, yeah, I think it's going to always be there and it's going to, you know, eventually we'll look back all cynical on this time period and laugh about it and think it's so funny and, and Wait, wish we did more stuff. for 70 days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, why didn't we take advantage of all that time? We had nothing to do. Um, but yeah, I think eventually, like everything else that's happened, uh, we'll we'll get past this and things will go back to normal. We'll be complaining about lines and prices and things like that. I can't wait. I can't wait to complain about frivolous things like boarding <laughs> groups for Rise of the Resistance. Like, I'm so stressed. I, all my problems in January were such simpler problems. <laughs> exactly. Soon. Hopefully soon. I, I do think, though, I do think we're going to look... Um, at a different environment where there's fire marshal codes, like a fire marshal will tell you, you can only have 200 people in a room. And I think there will be now a second number, which is the um, public awareness or like medical marshal that says, all right, I know the fire marshal says 200 people could be in here, but to be right. safe, I think it's a hundred now. Like, I think we might see attendance mandatory lower down to keep, less people in a footprint. I think that could be something that could change Disneyland. Yeah, except the Galaxy's Edge. They're like, you guys are fine. Oh, <laughs> there's not enough people here. Poor Star Wars Live. That was what I kept thinking of. Like, So they get Rise of the Resistance. Things are great. Everyone's coming and this happens, right? Not nah, sorry. Close it down. Shut it down. <laughs> the, can't get a break. The thing I thought about, too, is I was looking to see how much empty footage existed of Disneyland. Yeah. Because I had an idea. If I could find enough drone or news helicopter footage that I would take footage of that and then I would edit it to the Soarin' Over California music mm. and just do a little quick Instagram drop of that beautiful music but over the top of Disneyland. And so as I was searching, like, empty Disneyland, empty Disneyland, everything that was popping up was videos from last year where every <laughs> jerk blogger was being like Disneyland's dead ghost town empty and it's so funny it's like you idiots if you only knew what it would really be like a year later as a true ghost town yeah. you would you would regret ever typing this out well Jared as we're walking out the gate and I'm being a kid and, and not really wanting to go. I, I'm going to leave you here and I'm going to go sit in a bench because I just looked at the clock and there's 15 more minutes. But it was nice doing this with you, bud. Absolutely. I'll be at Salt and Straw if you need me. Oh, never mind. I'm ready to leave. <laughs> hey, right now, if we could make quarantine flavors of Salt and Straw, throw me one. Throw, what would you, if you could go to Salt and Straw and just make a flavor right now, what would it be? Oh gosh, it'd have to be like a like a all the Disneyland snacks in, in like one thing, like a Dole Whip flavor or like a churro flavor or something like that. I'd want to see that at at Salt and Straw. It's it's everything. It had to wrap up that whole experience in a flavor. So you know how there's a trend where this weird time kind of feels like that week between Christmas and New Year's where like yeah. <laughs> nothing's off limit and everything goes right. You're right. like have nothing going on, but you still feel kind of busy. Um, there's a lot of people in my neighborhood that have started putting their Christmas lights back out. 
Right, right. And I love that trend. I mean, you know, I go to the Christmas shop every time I go to the park. <laughs> um, but I would think, I, I really think to save the U.S. economy, that we should go hard on a for real Christmas in July. Like, mm. pull your tree out, everybody shop, every, you know, because it would support the economy. It would be a good time to celebrate that we made it through this if if this is all passed. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in a hard, hardcore Christmas in July could really get the economy going, get people in a good spirit, like really kind of bring everything back. So therefore, I'm asking Salt and Straw, make me a Christmas tree flavor. I'm oh. talking... <laughs> peppermint i want uh some of those weird christmas cookies you know those ones that like are covered in powdered sugar but they're really right. hard <laughs> crunch those up and put those in there for me like just give me a christmas tree dog i'd be all for it yeah i think that'd be great and just have to be able to deliver it in, in a timely manner yeah those scoopers are the best in the game all right everybody <laughs> thank you so much for going on this trip to disneyland hopefully this got you away from everything and you had a good time with us. As you know, right now during quarantine times, I'm trying to do Disneyland for designers every week just to give people an hour, 30 minutes each week to, to escape and to go away. And my buddy, my partner in crime, Jared will be there as often as he can, but my mm. boy's busy. So I don't want to burden him too much, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully Jared will get back into the park together again real soon, real quick. Can't wait. Can't wait. Can't come soon enough at this point. All right, citizens of Disneyland, I hope you enjoyed looking at all things It's a Small World. What just an epic journey going on It's a Small World is. The heart of this ride, this attraction. It says so much about Disneyland as a concept, as an emotion, as its history, and as why its present and future are so important continue to give young folks and old folks and folks in between the adventure of sailing around the world and remember that we are all the exact same model we're all the exact same doll we just look a little different come from a different spot inside the attraction but at the heart of it we are all made from the exact same mold and the mold that you and i share is one that loves going to Disneyland. As I said up at the beginning of the show, as long as social distancing is a thing, Disneyland for Designers is going to go out each and every Wednesday. And if you'd like to help support me doing this, you can go over to anchor.fm slash Disneyland for number four designers and support the show being out each and every week. And if the support does well, then we'll just keep this thing going and we'll do Disneyland for Designers every week and we'll all get to go to the park together thank you so much for listening thank you so much for supporting the show if you can and i'll see you back here next week with philander butler and our trip our lap around disney's california adventure until the next time i see you live the magic every single day and don't stop believing